This is Adias Brussels and today uh, David and I are going to talk about uh, a conference that we helped organise uh, last week in London as part of the work with UK in a changing Europe. Now this conference uh, was called uh, UK and EU relations in the Sunak era. We can discuss era uh, if you like, um, but together with uh, Hussain Kasim. Uh, and Cleo Davies at the uh, University of Warwick. We had a packed day of panels and speakers, lots to talk about. Um, fortune and favour also means that we can throw in the reshuffle that took place yesterday. So we're recording on the morning of the 14th of November. So I'm Simon Ashwood. I'm Professor of Politics and International Studies at the Open University and I'm David Maloney from also from the Open University uh, postdoc on the project that we're both working together, which is called. Uh, I don't what it's called. <laughs> I, so I think it's again. called Strategic Development of the UK and EU Relationship and Neighbours Become neighbors Good Friends. Become friends. So there we are. We should be licensing some theme music from somewhere. If only I could think of an appropriate place. Mm. Uh, David. Uh, Lots we could talk about, but what for you was the, the kind of the, the main message and takeaway you took from that uh, discussion we had last week? Indeed, so we had a look at uh, or attended, I should say, a conference uh, organised, co-organised by ourselves, of course, at Open University and uh, with Warwick at the uh, British Academy and uh, I have to say that in terms of that I thought it very much reflected on our own project indeed uh, the strategic development of the UKU relationship can neighbours be good friends and specifically the main takeaway for me was I suppose the context that the relationship with regards to the trade and cooperation agreement uh, is very much in terms of the review process is that it's not going to be as big as we would have assumed and I think there's been a lot of weight placed on that and that is something that we need to I suppose reflect on um, and the country I suppose in the Whitehall and Westminster should reflect on is that the UK seems to be putting a lot of emphasis on this uh, trade and cooperation review but in fact Brussels isn't I thought that was a very interesting takeaway from that number one and if I may add another takeaway to this um certainly the salience of brexit has certainly decreased over time i thought that was very interesting from what uh, fabian zulik was saying uh, the chief executive from the european policy center that it did was feeding into what we were saying previously um that there is no appetite in brussels to reopen the tca and that generally speaking the uk relations has become somewhat of a third order issue so of course the European Union has been battling since Brexit, um, the recovery from COVID, the war in Ukraine, and of course now um, the war in uh, Gaza as well. So two major international issues, plus an, an issue regarding trying to uh, overcome the COVID crisis, specifically the economic element of that. So we saw, of course, elements of integration there too. and. Yeah, I think that the fact that the EU now considers it to be less of a, an important issue can also be seen with the fact that the SecGen, as uh, Fabian was saying, has very much marked this within the within some units. There's no task force, as we know, um, and that's of course replicated in the Council. Uh, where there's only three officials in the working party now working on this issue and Brexit itself generally doesn't come up on European Council uh, conclusions. So 
we've seen that very much that the relationship that this Brexit itself from UKU relations more generally has very much decreased over time. I think that feeds into the fact that the TCA, in terms of what Brussels sees, it's not that important at this moment in time and probably isn't important because they see it as the TCA agreement is perfectly fine, working very well, not interested in reopening uh, that. So perhaps a technical review, if you will. Um, so generally what we see is low salience in the relationship, but overall, uh, while it's low salient, there's also this idea that they see it now very much in a constructive element as well. So obviously post Windsor framework, we're now seeing that the relationship is becoming a bit more mature, less grandstanding on issues, if you will. I think that's uh, a, a really helpful starting point. So what we've got is this distinction, perhaps between the legal aspects and the political aspects of this. And I think what we, we got very much again, and this kind of very much fits in with the, the work that you've been doing, interviewing officials uh, in member states, is that in legal uh, technical terms, the review that scheduled for 2026 is going to be a very low key exercise and it doesn't come with any implications in terms of renegotiation or changing the fundamentals of the relationship. So uh, we're seeing nothing that suggests that that is going to move and, you know, a very strong line of consistency, which drags down the, the, the salience of the issue because it's not that we've got to ramp up to get ready for this big meeting of uh, the parties to kind of go back to first principles and start all over again. And then that ties in with the, the political aspect that you've rightly talked about, that uh, there are other issues on the EU's agenda. Frankly, there are other agenda issues on the UK's agenda as well. But I think what it also reflects is uh, coming out of uh, the last year, that shift that we've seen under Truss very briefly, and then with Sunak, this move towards a more normal uh, mode of international relations, kind of good faith uh, uh, implementation of the withdrawal agreement and of the TCA um, as embodied in that Windsor framework. So giving them uh, a, a solid basis on which to work. So when we hear EU officials talking about the priority being uh, follow through and implementation of the two treaties, that's built on an understanding that the UK has given up uh, certainly for the time being, any notion that it might step away from those obligations. So it wants to follow through and use the space that's there. And in that sense, there's nothing really to discuss. You know, we've got a lot that's pre-programmed in the two treaties. We know that Windsor implementation has another, if I remember from the top of my head, at least 18 months to go before it's fully uh, in place with the various deferments and uh, uh, grace periods. The same with the, the CCA as well, that we've got a, a period through until 2026 at least, where we've got uh, tapering in of various measures. So if we've got everything broadly pre-programmed on the, the kind of the, the big lines of the relationship, there's not much need to attend to it in political terms, uh, which is helpful because there's everything else that's going on. Absolutely. So I think it's become uh, indeed as what we've discovered through our project and like to <laughs> uh, just to reemphasize a project against strategic development, the 
EU-KE relationship, can neighbours become good friends? And in that context, when we think about it, I mean, the relationship has become very much a low salient, less contentious issue, less political grandstanding, as I mentioned, or as indeed Fabian mentioned there too. So, I mean, what I potentially can see as an issue which is one of our favorite topics, and you know where this is going, Simon, uh, of course, is carbon, <laughs> is batteries for electric cars. Um, so uh, batteries for EVs. And that is an interesting issue because it kind of puts into focus the TCA, but also uh, provides a test for the TCA as well. And so far as that we have this issue where both the UK and the European Union at least have two different views and then internally with the EU as well, we do have those slight differences between France and Germany and some other member states too. Some member states are very clear in terms of seeing this as an issue that needs to be resolved. Um, they are member states with, of course, uh, car manufacturing, that would be Czechia, Germany, etc. France, by the way, of course, as your listeners will know, uh does indeed have a car industry but the argument there could be made that it is willing to have some degree of loss i.e lack of access to the uk's market uh in relation to this because it simply seeks to focus very much on internal uh or strengthening integration within the european union very much focused on moving towards strategic autonomy away from the uk so that's probably it insofar as contentious issues, but I would concur with what you're saying insofar as that we've very much moved into this very, without using a, uh, <laughs> a trade and cooperation term uh, or negotiating term, a level playing field, but insofar as that we've ended up in a playing field that is very much level in terms of the relationship insofar as that it is less likely to be contentious we're starting to see the uk work a bit more of course with the european union in relation to sanctions and defense which was an interesting panel as well if i may say so the third panel in that conference um which very much looked at that issue as well in terms of the uk becoming a strategic partner for the european union on defense and foreign common policy so overall i would agree with that but i would just say that there's perhaps one issue that may be uh, contentious, and that, of course, is indeed the uh, car batteries or electric or batteries for electric vehicles. Always with the car batteries with you. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. And I, I think that that, you know, I think that also points, though, to one of the paradoxes uh, here that we're kind of struggling a bit with and that I think everyone is struggling with. On the one hand, things are fine you know that we're out of the you know the hot phase of you know some fairly fundamental disagreements uh between the two sides but we still have this kind of lower level series of issues that need attending to now car batteries is an issue because of a pre-programmed deadline that was in the tca about the imposition of tariffs but we also have contingent events, you know, so war in Ukraine is a classic example. Uh, Israel-Palestine has more recently joined that list, although in a slightly less critical kind of way. So when we're thinking about these kind of things, I think we have to recognise that there's a tension between the, the structures and the timetable set up by the treaties uh, between the UK and the EU, and then uh, life as it happens uh, and the implications that, that that has. So when we're thinking about security and defence, and I think you know we might want to come back to this uh, at various points uh, in the coming months, 
is thinking about how that works out, that we have operational uh, and contingent needs driven by specific situations. And again, if we're thinking about the, the coming year, uh, this time next year, we might well have uh, a new uh, US president. Uh, and if that president is Donald Trump, which at the moment seems to be the kind of the, where the uh, polling suggests we are, then the need for UK involvement in supplying and resupplying Ukraine becomes that much more critical. Uh, and that potentially then feeds back into more systemic cooperation on security and defence. So neither the UK nor the EU nor the world is standing still. Um, and so that kind of creates incentives for uh, either just uh, ad hoc cooperation or interaction and uh, potentially more systemic kinds of models that go on. And I think this kind of, yeah, and I think this kind of comes back to then maybe the the other kind of query or, or, or logic that's going on here and why we're in this sort of hiatus of uh, activity, which is the looming general election here in the UK. So just as a reminder, next year is likely to see, well, we'll definitely see a change of leadership in the European Union. So we've got uh, the European elections for the Parliament in the beginning of June. That will lead to a change in the Commission and we'll also have a, a new uh, president of the European Council. So the kind of the senior figures uh, who have been dealing with Brexit issues, the weights of interests in the European Parliament are all going to shift. Now, that might not be so major or so consequential, given the kind of the, the consensual model that has been adopted uh, by the EU in terms of determining policy. But more critically, at some point uh, during next year, uh, we will have a general election here in the UK. And uh, yesterday's reshuffle was very much uh, with an eye to that and about trying to find uh, a way through for the Conservative Party in the face of some very negative polling. Um, David, uh, any thoughts about what this reshuffle means, if anything, for the short run of uh, relations uh, from the European side? How is this likely to be seen in your view? Well, I think Lord Cameron, I think that is now his new title, which we should address him as, and I know you'll be addressing him as such if you oversee him, uh, is that um, the focus will be, I think the argument can be made is that because he is a old hand, he's quite skilled, he knows how to operate in a room, i.e. he's quite diplomatic, um, and also because of his political weight, uh, it can be argued that Rishi Sunak will probably take less of a role in terms of international affairs, which allows for David Cameron to run a bit in terms of or to take the lead on uh, the question of the UK's relationship with the European Union, which is interesting, of course, because he left office because of the Brexit campaign, as we know, the referendum loss. and. It is interesting insofar as that he will now have to pursue a policy, which is one of the flagship policies of the United Kingdom in terms of foreign policy, which is Brexit, Global Britain. These are areas and ideas which he does not agree with. So there is potential for him to perhaps pursue somewhat of deepening relations. He is a serious politician to help deepen relations in some areas, but very limited way, I would think. And the reason for that, of course, is we have the general election coming up in, I think, less than a year now. 
there's very little that the EU and the UK can agree to. Firstly, because the EU is in a situation whereby it is in a wait and see to see whether or not the Conservatives are re-elected, which of course is very unlikely. Um, so they're waiting to see what does Stammer bring to the table. So I think in terms of what Sunak has brought and his era has brought is, I suppose, the atmospherics, an improvement in the atmospherics, a much more mature relationship. I think Cameron's appointment will help solidify that, cement that, build on that idea that the atmospherics between the UK and the European Union are improving. And in terms of actual real content, in terms of policy, I don't see much coming in that way. And the reason for that, again, of, of course, is that his appointment comes within less than a year to the next general election. So there's going to be very little he can do. And again, of course, the European Union itself is waiting to see what Starmer brings to the table when he is uh, in government. Yeah, again, I think, you know, I, I think you make those points well, and particularly this notion that, you know, whilst uh, David Cameron might be uh, a more weighty figure, as you, you describe him than Cleverly, it's not that Cleverly was doing a bad job, in particular, I think on European policy, I think he'd given a good account of himself, it had been constructive relationships with Maros Shevkovic, uh, you know, steering through uh, the Windsor framework, um, and, you know, making the Foreign Office, uh, you know, get up to speed in its new role as a coordinating uh, kind of body. So, uh, you know, we, we, we're not likely to see quantitative changes in that. And, you know, as you say, David Cameron's, well, what's the right way to put it? His strengths are probably not directed in a European direction um, as much as he will know a lot of the people. Uh, he's going to be coming with a, a degree of baggage. Um, uh, and frankly, I think, you know, in terms of where a foreign secretary can make a, a difference and make a positive impression, it's not going to be on the European issue in the next 12 months. It's going to be on things like Ukraine or Israel, Palestine, uh, and potentially on the transatlantic relationship too. So I think, again, we're, what we're seeing here is a, a holding pattern. And there's that question from the European side about how much is it worth investing time in a government that is uh, not looking as though it's especially confident about its chances when that election comes. You know, why build uh, relationships with people who might be out of jobs in relatively short order? And, you know, I think this kind of comes back to the, the conference again, that the impression we got uh, from everybody was that Labour is not going to be coming with a big package of policies. You know, there's not a cunning plan hidden away that is going to be whipped out and, you know, make everything right, as I think some uh, sections of British uh, public opinion might uh, hope or wish. And so we're likely to have a, a much more incremental kind of process. And that was uh, interesting, you know, that we were kind of getting signals that, uh, Labour Party leadership is well aware of what the, the TCA review uh, can and can't do. Um, and so, if anything, it's a question of getting their rhetoric to kind of calm down enough to reflect what's likely to be a relatively modest package. So, you know, it might be a discursive shift, but it's not likely to see any major changes in terms of policy. Um, 
What we haven't talked about is who's no longer in government. And I think this is also an important part of yesterday's reshuffle. The removal of Swella Braverman as Home Secretary has been long anticipated. And, you know, you might argue that she has made it so that she could have to be sacked by Rishi Sunak as a way of burnishing her credentials amongst the the, the right of the Conservative Party. So now as a backbencher, we're likely to see her uh, make uh, a pitch to become the next leader. So again, uh, a lack of confidence about the next general election. But if Rishi Sunak does lose, then we have to assume that he's out of a job. Um, and Swella Bravman very much fancies herself as the next leader of the party. And so when we're thinking about UK-EU relations, I think on the EU side, as much as there might be uh, a quiet level of happiness that you now don't have the Conservatives in power and that offers a chance for a broader kind of resetting of relations with the UK. The very volatility of British politics also means that there's a risk that we might end up with a single term Labour government. And if uh, Swella Bravman is then going to be coming into number 10 as minister, uh, I think uh, any prudent European official and politician will ask themselves, well, uh, we need to be prepared for that. And part of that might well be just being very cautious about what commitments we enter into with uh, a Labour government during those four or five years. So the shadow of this period uh, is going to be casting uh, very far into the future. Um, which I guess is good for us, David. That means we get to keep on uh, working on these uh, topics for the rest of our lives. Uh, and you're much younger than me, so your life is uh, even more uh, filled with this issue. And yeah, you can't see this on a podcast. He's rubbing his eyes and <laughs> smiling wryly. Um, uh, and just as a, a kind of a thought uh, around that, how much do you think Labour can do and indeed wants to do on, uh, on the basis of what you've seen both here in the UK and in the EU? I think your summary is correct insofar as that the Labour Party are pretty much aware that the TCA review is not going anywhere. Where I think they can go somewhere and I think where they will be able to improve relations is in the area of defence. I think this is a very easy win for the Labour Party to improve relations between the UK and the EU insofar as that it's mentioned in the TCA, this idea of greater cooperation between uh, the EU and the UK on foreign policy and defence policy as well. So I think it is an easy win for them to to achieve. In terms of other areas, there may be some side issues as well, smaller issues to which the public are not aware of that are perhaps not as beefy as defence and security. They would include mobility issues, for example, some mobility allowing students from EU member states to go to the UK, though that indeed is a challenge in itself because, of course, a number of these schools from France and Germany also include non-EU nationals. And now that the UK has left the European Union, this makes it a bit difficult in terms of visas. Um, also where there may be some continued work is indeed on Frontex, uh, that agreement in relation to border force and Frontex, this agreement in relation to sharing data still hasn't come into force yet. Um, it, we don't know when. Uh, if it does come into force in when the Labour government are in, when Labour is in power, then that is another easy win, I suppose, for that. But in terms of migration more generally, 
I don't see too much that can be developed there because for the UK to get real substance from in relation to migration, i.e. either stopping the boats or uh, greater cooperation more generally in fighting people, smuggling, etc. The UK is going to have to give something to the European Union and that of course is burden sharing, burden sharing of peoples that are arriving in the southern part of Italy to the UK and that's simply not going to work domestically for the UK. So where I see the wins again for the Labour government would be in the area of defence and foreign policy in terms of improving that relationship, but not on migration per se. Mobility is a bit more complex than people might think. Um, so on defence is certainly the, the area that I think is going to be much improved. Again, back to my old hobby horse, it will be interesting to see how uh, this issue will be resolved either before or indeed after the general election uh, with regards to uh, car uh, batteries for electric vehicles. I think that is an important issue and again another test for which the Labour Party in power is going to have to grapple with. It is a complicated, it is a technical issue but it also is an issue that is very important because a lot of car manufacturing takes place in the UK and of course for uh, European car manufacturers the UK is a very important market for their exports. So uh that, that is an important issue and i think that if they can get over that that will be a big win as well but not so much again in terms of a, a win that captures public opinion but it is an important win to state to the eu partners that perhaps as you mentioned earlier that maybe big agreements may not be able to be achieved and but these small, technical, but very important agreements can be reached between the UK and the EU despite changes in government. I think there will not be so much of a shift of access between London and Brussels in terms of a closer relationship because, as you mentioned, that threat between that change in government. But where there may be some changes is at the technical level where there is that consensus on, say, uh, batteries for EVs, maybe on SPSS, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what we've got here is a situation where neither side has a strong uh, structural incentive to put a lot of effort into things, but there will be a need, a persistent need, a, a low level to actually not neglect relations and i think this is going to be one of the key features however uh next year's elections turn out that the uk will have to continue to be mindful of uh the sh changes in uh everybody's uh, situation as you say that need for the uk to be coming with uh, an offer to the eu i think is probably a central part of that, that the EU is not going to be the one who is going to be going and making creative proposals and uh, flexing uh, first. It's very much going to be on the UK-led uh, side of things that they will need to uh, do the work to make that uh, uh, come about. So we're, we're in a strange situation where uh, nobody's Particularly minded to put time into it, but if they don't put time into it, then we're likely to end up with situations and problems that become more and more difficult uh, as we go on. I'm aware that Nextdoor have started mowing their lawn, which is quite impressive for the middle of November, 
Um, but uh, perhaps we should use that as an opportunity to wrap up. Um, I don't know if you've got any final thoughts, David. Yes, I think you're correct insofar as that this relationship, despite it not gaining the attention uh, it, uh, it is getting now from, say, Brussels or London, requires constant uh, attention, if you will, because there are potential landmines, there are technical issues that need to be addressed. And this relationship in terms of the technical level, both at the UK level and in Brussels level, if not at the high political level, does need to receive attention, does need to be, the trees need to be looked at and monitored. And we know in the working party that, of course, the working party in the council, uh, UK working party in the council that looks at these issues and a big focus in terms of the member states is looking at the implementation of the withdrawal agreement of the trade and cooperation agreement, focusing on very important issues for these member states, such as uh, citizens' rights. So even if exit more generally has gone down in terms of salience level it's not discussed at the european council anymore the epc might be seen as a, just a talking shop at the lower level in terms of the implementation of the wa and the tca attention needs to be given even when we have these change in government so at this very much technical level because there are very important issues now and there will be going forward that need to receive this attention from policymakers to ensure that there's a smooth running, particularly on, say, trade, for example, between the UK and the EU, so that these landmines don't blow up in the faces of political leaders. So even if there is no high general level of salience, and even if the Labour Party doesn't achieve much, again, at the technical level, work needs to be continuous to ensure that this relationship is as smooth as possible going forward. Well, to, to channel my inner David Cameron, I think we've all got a little bit of David Cameron in us somewhere. Um, you know, if we if we don't want to be banging on about Europe, then we have to keep on talking about Europe. And I think that's going to be the leitmotif. And even for someone uh, like David Cameron, he's going to find that in the next year is going to involve uh, repeated bouts of uh, talking with counterparts and managing uh, those relationships. That's us uh, for this time. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we can uh, look forward to uh, some more uh, interviews coming through in the coming weeks. We'd also recommend uh, a podcast series, uh, Books on Brexit, uh, run by Cleo Davis and uh, Hassan Kasim uh, uh, at Warwick, uh, where they're interviewing various authors of Brexit related books uh, and it's worth your listening you can find that wherever you listen to your podcasts so it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me there we are it's almost as if we practiced it <laughs> uh, thank you very much and I'm going to go and have a look at what next door's lawn looks like <laughs> bye bye